0: Go ahead and now open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter and chapter 5. We have been studying 1 Peter since last October, almost a year ago. And um, we took the summer off just about two months or so. So we haven't been in 1 Peter in just a little while. And because of that, I'd like to refresh our memory a little bit on what 1 Peter is about and why First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, and then we'll get into our passage for this evening, which is chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, but I want to kind of refresh our memory just a little bit as we get started. Peter wrote this book in mid-60s to Christians who were leaving the city of Rome because they're being persecuted by the Emperor Nero. Nero wanted to build a massive house for himself called the Domus Aurea, which means the golden house. It's... There, he actually ended up building it. You can go see it, the remnants of it, even today. But in order to do so, he had to burn a portion of the city of Rome to make way for his massive uh, house. Well, unfortunately, things got out of control. And so a significant portion of the city of Rome was burned. People were homeless. People turned on Nero, seeking someone to blame for the fire. Nero blamed the Christians because Christians kept preaching about fire coming down from heaven and judging the world. And that started persecution in the year 64, AD 64. And because of that, Christians began to leave their property. They left their friendships. They left their churches in the city of Rome and they migrated north to Turkey. And so Peter, an apostle in the city of Rome, that's where he did a lot of his ministry. In fact, the gospel of Mark is really Peter's version of the life of Jesus because he taught Mark and then Mark ended up writing the gospel of Mark, but it's really Peter's version adding to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four portraits of Jesus Christ. And when you understand the book of First Peter, the key verse that we've identified as the central lens through which to understand the book is chapter 3, verse 10. First Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and this is what it says. The one who desires life to love and see good days. We've said that the main theme of the book of First Peter is to understand it under this banner of the good life. While Christians were being persecuted, while they were fleeing for safety, it's still possible for a believer in this world to enjoy life. And Peter gives us a manual on how to do that. Certainly, he expects Christians to stand firm. That's chapter 5, verse 12. Certainly, he expects us to be faithful and to be good stewards of what God has given us. But you can also see this book through this lens that it is possible in the middle of pain and persecution to actually enjoy your life because of how it's connected to Jesus Christ. And so Peter divides his epistle into three sections. You can see that on the screen in front of you. The first section goes through chapter 2, verse 10. And what we see there, it's the good life lived in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who holds us together, who holds our life both spiritually and physically speaking. The reason that we said that this is all about Christ in us, Christ with us, is because Jesus is mentioned more times in this first section than in the rest of the epistle. Eight of the 11 mentions of Jesus appear in this first section. That's more than half. Half of the references to Christ also appear in this first section in verse 8 is one of those key verses that some of you have memorized but certainly gives us a perspective on how to understand our life in christ and peter says though you have not seen him that is these christians have not seen jesus christ in person though you have not seen him yet you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, it's possible to rejoice, greatly rejoice, a joy that is filled with glory because your life is connected to Christ and you are anticipating your reunion with him. Peter then transitions to the second main section that begins in chapter 2, verse 11, and goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. That section begins and ends, In the same way, it's a call to godliness. And he focuses his attention now from living your good life in Christ to living your good life in the community, in the secular community that surrounds you. How do you maintain your testimony? You are to live a godly life. The first expression of that, according to Peter, as you look at chapter 2, verses 11, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 8, is to be submissive. Submissive to the government, submissive to your employer, submissive in your marriage, submissive in all of your relationships. Humility and harmonies to characterize the Christian life as people are watching us and then we defend our faith. That's chapter 3, verse 15, that we have a reason for the hope that's within us. When people watch a Christian's life, they should be able to observe and then ask a question. Why is that individual different? Why are they more hopeful? That's exactly what Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 3. They are asking you to give an account, a defense, a reason, an explanation for the hope that is within you. It's not just a philosophical argument they're looking for. It's not just for a theological defense of a truth. No, it's the hope because people are so hopeless in this world and they're looking for hope and Christians have hope to offer. And so when they look at our lives, they're asking questions. They do so because at the beginning of chapter four, right, as he ends this second section, he talks about the fact that our life is different now. It says, you used to run with the Gentiles, carrying out the desires of the flesh, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, and idolatries. And then verse four says, now you've stopped doing them and your friends are wondering what's wrong with you. Why do you no longer find joy and satisfaction in those things that you once used to find satisfaction in? And that gives people a prompt to ask you questions. And Pastor John on Sunday made it very clear that the gospel is preached with our lips, and then our lives support and defend that verbal testimony. But then Peter opens up the third section. And the third section begins in chapter 4, verse 7 and goes all the way to the end of the book. And that is our good life in the church. Our good life connected to Christ, our good life connected to the community or lived within the community. And then our good life experienced in the church. And notice in chapter four, verse nine, actually let's look at verse 10, where Peter begins his challenge to us as believers as we live together in the church. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks to do so with one who speak in the utterances of God. Whoever serves to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So the beginning of this new section focuses on your unique Tailor made for you, specifically granted to you by the Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift. It's called a gift. It's not called a responsibility. It's not called a duty. It's not called a painful experience. It's a gift. But it's given to every single believer as each one has received. That's repeated in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 14 and 15. And multiple passages, Ephesians 4 talks about it. Where the New Testament writers talk about the Christians having spiritual gifts given to them by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose is twofold. One, verse 10, to serve one another. Two is to glorify God. And that's verse 11. If you are using your spiritual gift, your life in the church will be more enjoyable. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. Listen to how Paul reflected on his use of the spiritual gift in the church of Philippi when he was serving them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. This is what Paul says. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Four times, Paul refers to joy. And it says, when I'm using my spiritual gift to serve you, to serve your faith, I'm rejoicing. And then he's appealing to the readers. Now you also rejoice with me. In other words, you also use your spiritual gift to serve one another, to serve Paul, and that will bring you joy. One of the reasons that Christians may be lacking joy It's because they're not using their spiritual gift to serve one another and to glorify God. And you have one. And you will give an account. How do I know
1: that? Well, because of what the end of verse 10
0: says. As good stewards. That is the responsibility part. That is the accountability part. That is, every single Christian has been given a gift, and they are to be good stewards of that gift. And they will give an account to God on Judgment Day, how they used that gift to edify the saints and to exalt the triune God. We're here to help you identify and then apply your spiritual gift in this church. So please ask me, ask another Christian, ask another leader, how can you discern what the gift is? And then how can you apply it? What are the ministry opportunities that we have here or even in the whole church? Well, that is the beginning of this last section where Peter focuses on our life in the church. And then he goes to verse 12 to verse 19. And then he says, but remember, because you're different, you will be persecuted you will suffer and you are to respond in the way that demonstrates that you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, it says, those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In chapter two, at the end of chapter two, in verse 24 and 25, it said that Jesus Christ, when he was suffering, he entrusted himself To God the Father. And now when we are suffering for doing what is right. Suffering verse 16 of chapter 4. As Christians. We're also to entrust that experience. That suffering. That is according to the will of God. I just read that in verse 19. We entrust ourselves to God. Meaning he knows what's happening. He knows why it's happening. And ultimately there is a reward for those who suffer faithfully. But take a look at what Peter does as he moves through this last section. You can see a slide on the screen of the different audiences that he is addressing and pointing out in this last section. In the first part, verses 7 through 11, is all about the saints. You and I are saints in the church. Then verses 12 to 19, the audience is sinners. Now we are supposed to be faithful as we suffer from sinners, by sinners. In the beginning of chapter 5, it was about shepherds. The shepherds in the church. The elders who are shepherding the flock of God. We've heard all these sermons last semester, by the way. They're all available on the website. And then in our passage tonight, the audience is God. And then in the two weeks, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. And the audience is Satan. In other words, we engage Satan in some way. And then finally, the last two verses of chapter 5, the very end of this book, the very end of this last section, is Again, we go back and verse 12 says, We stand firm with the saints in our faith. Well, for tonight, the audience is God. There's always one ultimate audience, right? We aim to please Him. Yes, we live faithfully in this world as people are watching us because of what 212 says, they will give God glory on judgment day. Your life, either solicits glory for God or it hinders it. And then you suffer and that also glorifies God. You faithfully proclaim the gospel that glorifies God. But here, as we look at this section this evening, and we're going to talk about surrendering yourself to God. Surrendering yourself to God. God is the audience and God also will be, Glorified. So let me read for us verses five through seven as we focus in on this brief passage. Peter says, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. There are two reasons that I want to give you this evening why you should surrender yourself under the mighty hand of God. Surrender yourself under the mighty hand of God first because of your future exaltation. Because surrendering yourself to God results in a future exaltation for you. The link from our passage back to verses one through four and really leaking into verse five that belongs in between the first paragraph and this current paragraph is the focus on humility. Verses one through four was all about leadership, shepherding the people of God in the church. They're not supposed to lord it over the people of God. But then the people of God are supposed to follow, submit. And it says in verse 5, you younger men. Now that may come across as age and gender. That's not the meaning of that word. It's not about just the young guys are supposed to submit themselves to the elders and everybody else doesn't have to. That's not the point of how that word is used in the Greek. It actually means those who are not in the position of elders. Those who may not have been Christians as long those who may not have that official office and so it's everybody else who's younger in the faith we are likewise to submit to our elders peter is calling all believers to faithfully follow the leadership that god has established in his church it could be that he writes this two things one He says to the leaders, do not lord your authority over the people of God. That's verses 2 and 3. It may be because in that time of crisis, persecution in this case, there's a propensity on the leader's part to exercise emergency powers. We've experienced that in this country, haven't we, recently? In the state, especially. To exercise emergency powers. There's a crisis. I need to lead you through it. I'm going to withhold some freedoms from you and just going to lead you through this. And so leaders can become more authoritarian, lording over the people of God. At the same time, the people of God also going through that same crisis may be resistant to leadership. We see things differently. We don't want to follow your lead. And so Peter addresses both in this context, in this moment of persecution and pain and crisis, and says, listen, leader, do not be authoritative with the people of God. There's a chief shepherd and you will give an account to him. But then the rest of you follow humbly the leadership of the church. Over the last year and a half, we experienced something like that here. It has been a difficult time for this church, like all the other churches. We're not exempt. No matter how famous our pastor is, no matter how big our church is, it's been a difficult season. The elders met weekly for many, many months last year. Usually we meet monthly. We met weekly for many months in order to try to figure out how to move forward in this season of difficulty, the COVID era, the BLM era. All those things that happened last year that you all recall. And so we had lots of conversations about what to do, how to uh, open up the church. What are we going to do? And ultimately, back in July of last year, just over a year ago, it took us that long. Remember, COVID started in March. March 16th was the first shutdown day. And it was at the end of July when we came up with the statement, Jesus is Lord of the church, not Caesar. Not to say that we didn't believe that before, but we had to talk and think carefully and what is going to be our formal public position on what to do in this season of COVID. And we came out with this decision. We know one thing for sure. Jesus commands the church to meet. It's obvious. It's in the Bible. You can't get around it. So we're going to do that. Now, how? It's up to the conscience of the individual. You want to come in a mask? Come in a mask. You want to sit inside? Sit inside. Outside? Outside. You want to zoom? Zoom. Zoom. To this day, we're still live streaming. We streamed before, we're still live streaming in multiple languages. Five we peaked at seven languages at the COVID season. Now we're down to five. But I'll just say the elders thought carefully in order to say, okay, what are the options that we can give as a way to shepherd the people of God? That was the goal. That was the only goal, shepherding the people of God. And so we said, it's going to be up to the conscience of the individual. If they want to be here, if they want to be inside, outside, and we're going to treat you as adults and you do what is right, because that's exactly what Romans 15 says. Receive each one in the Lord according to the conscience. And so we did that. But was it difficult? Certainly was difficult. Certainly, there were some people who resisted that leadership. Some have left. So what Peter's talking about in our passage isn't just a hypothetical. It actually, I would say, happened to inform here on this campus a year ago. But I would say it happened in many churches. In fact, I was on a call with Australia yesterday, a pastor in Australia. And uh, he was telling me how his elder board is divided. I said, well, what's the number? He said, there's two of us. There's me going one way and the other, other is going that way. It's hard. Can you imagine? And of course, that goes through the church and the church is divided. And if you're reading the news, you know how bad it is to be in Australia or New Zealand these days. Everything is on lockdown. So to say is this, this kind of went through the world of Christianity. So Peter's challenge was relevant in the first century and it is relevant in our century. That we are to shepherd the people of God, not as lords, but yet we're to follow the elders with humility. Why? Look at verse 5. The very end. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's two ways to get God's attention. Two paths to glory.
1: Self-promotion or self-denial.
0: Both will solicit God's eye. Self-promotion is illustrated by the rulers of the world and the kingdom of this earth. Self-denial is illustrated by the kingdom of God and by the leaders of the church. What verse five says is God takes a fierce stance against the proud. God is opposed to the proud. And Peter stresses the hostility between God and the proud in the original language by putting those words right next to each other. Literally, this is what the end of verse 5 says. God, the proud, continually opposes. To the humble, he continually gives grace. It's as if they are facing each other toe to toe. God, the proud, continually opposes. You want to get God's attention in that way? Be proud. And God will line up his hosts, his armies against you. But notice the other language of opposition. That's in verse 8. We'll look at that in just two weeks. In the middle of the verse, it says, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith. It's also language of opposition, hostility, fierceness. So as much as God opposes the proud, we are to oppose Satan. And I would hope you would assume that means all opposition. You're not going to give Satan an inch. In your life. As you take everything. And Peter says. As he continues. Verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward each other. Just like you wear clothes all the time. You're to wear humility all the time. That's it. It's that simple. The illustration is very basic. Never take off humility. I also think there's an illusion back. To John 13, Peter was in the upper room when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, including his feet. And right before he started, it says, he took off his outer garment and clothed himself with a towel. There's that imagery of Jesus wrapping a towel around himself, stooping down to wash the dirty feet of his 12 disciples. Humility was exemplified there. And Jesus says, just as I have done for you as your Lord, you are to do to others. So if Jesus, the chief shepherd, we saw that in the beginning of this chapter, if Jesus, the model of humility, was willing to serve and be humble and be a servant. In fact, it says, I've come to serve, not to be served then we are to do the same. I think sometimes we in the church aspire to leadership, aspire to ministry opportunities. And sometimes, unfortunately, our intentions are wrong. We want to be closer to certain leaders. We want a certain title. We want a certain position. Perhaps we want to be on the stage. You see, in the Bible, leadership is all about service. Josiah Gramman, one of the pastors and elders here at the church, preached on Isaiah 66. Verse 2 says, God says, to this one I will look, to the one who is contrite in spirit, who is humble and who trembles at my word. And from that verse, and then John 13, he drew this statement. The higher up you go in ministry, the more feet you have to wash. That's the right perspective. Is that the more is entrusted to you, the more of a servant you are to become. The lower you are to stoop. Some of you are leaders in this Bible study. Others of you are leaders in this church. Is that your perspective of ministry? Is that how you think of yourself? I have feet to wash. I have to serve the people that God has entrusted to my care. It's not just talking about preachers or elders or leaders or small group leaders. It's talking about every single servant. We are here to serve. We're here to serve one another, equipping the saints and exalting Jesus Christ. The reason that this would have been radical is because in the ancient Roman world, in the ancient Greek theater, humility was mocked. It was ridiculed on the stage because A normal, free Roman citizen would never, ever call himself humble. That word was associated with servants, slaves, those who just grovel on the ground and clean up the dirt after other people. And yet Jesus picks up that language and says, that's exactly what I expect you to do. That's exactly who I expect you to be, a humble individual. And so Peter picks up two terms. In verse 5, he says, close yourself with humility. And then in verse 6, humble yourself. Different words. Verse 5 has the word that means think like a slave. It's a unique word. It never existed as a word before the New Testament. That just shows you how much hatred the Greeks, Greeks and Romans had against the idea of humility. But then, the christians invented this word and then it appears in subsequent christian literature after the new testament seven times in the new testament and then beyond in the second century and beyond the second word in verse six humble yourselves is a general word it also appears 14 times in the new testament but here's how it's used and just listen to the survey of humility in the new testament jesus says in matthew 23 verse 11 and 12 the greatest among you shall be your servant Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Very similar to what we read here. God will exalt you the property. Look, at in. You have a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector going to pray. And this is now the tax collector praying. And here's his description. He, the tax collector, was, uneven to, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house satisfied, justified rather, rather than the the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The repentant tax collector refused to look up at God, face heaven because he was so ashamed of his life and of his sin. He was so humble about it. You see, there's an element with humility that it's all how you view yourself before God. Whereas the Pharisee, if you were to read the rest of the story, he's the one who comes to God and gives him a list of accomplishments. Look at how good I am, he says to God. Whereas the tax collector says, look at how horrible I am. I can't even look up to heaven. It's appropriate to ask the question, are you elevating yourself before God? Are cataloging your accomplishments to God? Matthew 18.4 uses this term to describe Jesus talking about children who inherit the kingdom of God. That is, humility is childlike faith. It's coming to God in sincerity. Luke 3.4 talks about the mountains being humbled. In other words, you think of massive mountains being leveled out. That's the idea. Humility is dropping someone lower than they really are. Second Corinthians 11.7, Paul says... I humble myself so that the Corinthians may be exalted. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Very similar to our passage for the evening. So in the previous chapters, we talked about humbling yourself, submitting yourself, being submissive, obedient to the government, to your employer, within your marriage, with other believers. Now the audience is God. It's about surrendering your life to God. Certainly, first of all, by acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you need repentance. That you need forgiveness, that God is your judge until you bring your sin to him and ask him for forgiveness. And if you come to him and ask him for forgiveness, he promises to forgive you. And he promises to never use any of your sins against you, past, present, or future. He will never be your judge. He will only be your savior. And that offer of forgiveness is extended to every single person here, but anybody who engages Jesus Christ through the the gospel. If you have not repented of sins, which means you acknowledge them, you confess them, and then you turn away from them. If you have not done so, recognizing that you've been running away from God, running in a direction that is not pleasing to God, It's pleasing to you. Ask him for forgiveness. And he promises to forgive every single sin. And then welcome you into his family. That is the first step of surrendering yourself to God. But then the second step is what we'll be talking about this evening. It is understanding that there is a mighty hand of God over your life. And that mighty hand leads you every single moment of every single day. This is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase appears. The mighty hand of God. But it's taken from the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. There, it appears multiple times. And the imagery in the story of the Exodus is that God's mighty hand delivered Israel from bondage, from Egyptian slavery. God's mighty hand protected Israel in the wilderness. God's mighty hand led Israel into the promised land. So you pick up all these implications from that imagery from the Old Testament story of the Exodus, and that is the application here, is that God's mighty hand is delivering you. It is protecting you. It is leading you. There's a certain element of judgment because that
1: same mighty hand judged the Egyptians.
0: And it delivered the people of God. So what that means is we must embrace every single moment as coming from the mighty hand of God. Instead of fighting God's sovereign hand and leading in your life, submit. Submit yourself, surrender yourself, humble, verse 6, yourself under the mighty hand of God. Psalm Psalm 46, verse 10 says it this way. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the peoples. Come down. Stop fighting. Some of your translations say cease striving. Cease fighting God. I will be exalted, God says. And so when you don't submit yourself, when I don't submit myself to God's mighty hand, we are opposing God. We're getting in the way of God advancing his kingdom. The focus of our lives becomes self, not God, not advancing God's kingdom. But I think the greatest expression and really the manifestation of this principle is in Philippians chapter 2. You can either follow along on the screen or go there in your Bible. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we see an illustration of submission or surrendering to God's will. We're talking about Jesus. Listen to verse 5 and following. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ had to humble himself under God's plan of redemption, he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross which was reserved for two types of people slaves and traitors the worst of the worst criminals no roman citizen could be crucified that's how bad crucifixion was and jesus humbled himself taking on the form of a bond servant a slave jesus demonstrates for us, humility through submission. Oftentimes we think about humility as how I view myself in regards to others, in regards to God. That's true. But in this specific passage, I do think in First Peter 5 and in Philippians 2, the focus is on submission. A truly humble person surrenders completely to God. And in response to Jesus' surrender... Take a look at what God did for him on the screen. John 5, he makes him judge of all. All judgment is given to the Son. He will be the only judge. Revelation 19, He's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, He's the head of the church. Hebrews 1, all the angels of God worship Him. Hebrews 1.8, the throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. Psalm 110, Hebrews 1, all the enemies are a footstool for His feet. Colossians 1, all things were created for Him. First Corinthians 15.27, all things are subject to Him. Hebrews 1, He is the heir of all things. Ephesians 1, all things find their consummation in Him. Colossians 1, he is the preeminent one. Ephesians 1, this is amazing. All things are under his feet and he has total power and sovereignty. Verses 21 through 22, all spiritual powers. He's above every name in this age, in the coming age, all things are under his feet. He's the head over all things and he fills all in all. And then Colossians 1, 18, climax says, he alone will have first place in everything. You guys, that's the result of Jesus surrendering himself to the plan of God. God highly exalted him. That's the result of the cross. And we worship this Jesus. And John Piper says it so powerfully. It's on the screen. He is always infinitely admirable in everything and over everything supreme. Over all galaxies and endless reaches of space, over the earth from the top of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet down in the Mariana Trench, in the Pacific Rim. He is sovereign and supreme over all plants and animals, from the peaceful blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses. He's supreme over all weather and all movements of the earth, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, floods, snow, rain, sleet. He's supreme over all chemical processes that heal or destroy cancer, AIDS, malaria, flu, and all the amazing grace of antibiotics and thousand healing drugs that we do not deserve. He's supreme over all countries and governments and armies. He's supreme over Al-Qaeda and the terrorists and the kidnappings and the suicide bombings and the beheadings. He's supreme over all nuclear threats from Iran and Russia. Russia should not be in here. He is supreme over Russia and North Korea. He's supreme over politics and elections and debates on Thursday. He's supreme over media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure. He is supreme over all education and universities, no matter what they teach. And he is supreme over all scholarship and science and research. He is supreme over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation. And he is supreme over the internet and all information systems and Abraham Kuyper adds there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine
1: that's the result of Jesus surrendering himself to the mighty hand of God God highly exalted him So when
0: God said, you will sit at my right hand, and I will make all the enemies a footstool for your feet, God meant it. He did exactly what he promised for his son. And he handed the cosmos to the son, and says, rule forever and ever. And we are part of that inheritance. And that's why we worship him. In Revelation 5.13 says, And for all eternity, all creation, and every redeemed person will echo the following words. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. But guess what it says four verses earlier. The chorus of praise from everything that has breath says this. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's us. And then this is us. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That is our future exaltation. Where God promises to those who follow Jesus Christ that we will reign with him. And this is not the only passage in the New Testament that promises this. Let me give you a few others. In our passage in verse four, Peter actually says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The idea there is that you will carry it off by yourself, as your wages. You do work, you get paid, and then you take the check home. That's the imagery here. You will take the crown, it's yours, and you will carry it off as a way for Jesus to thank you for your faithfulness. The crown, the unfading crown, comes from the word that actually means a flower. And in ancient times, the mysticism surrounding that flower was that it was an eternal flower it was a flower that was called the amaranth the quality of that flower was immortality so the idea here is that you will get a crown that you will never lose it will never fade in beauty it will never fade in magnificence but let me give you a few other passages Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And then in verse 10 of our passage, it says we will welcome, be welcomed into his eternal glory as well. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says that we will have an incorruptible crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, we will get the crown of glory. James 1.12, Revelation 2.10, we will receive a crown of life. 2 Timothy 4.8, we'll receive a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will reign with him. And then 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Why do we surrender ourselves to God? Because of our future exaltation. Verse 6, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. There's a promise of this exaltation. It's a purpose statement. There is a purpose. This is why you submit yourself so that you may be exalted. Sometime in the future, the ultimate fulfillment is eschatological. It's in the future. We went through these verses just now. But certainly God honors you and blesses you in this life as well for your faithfulness, but it doesn't compare to what you will receive in eternity. But remember this, while you might be tired of waiting for your reward for your faithfulness, while you may be tired of waiting for that next ministry promotion, Jesus is still waiting for all that I just read about him. He's still waiting. All of his enemies are not under his feet just yet. And some of the other passages. And he's been waiting for 2,000 human years. So there's a proper time coming for us in the future. You see, this is part of humility. It's to live according to God's timetable at the proper time. There is a timetable for you. And surrendering yourself means to submitting to that timetable. Whatever God has for you. Listen, wherever you are in, in your life right now, the place that you're in, the position that you're in, the trial that you're in, or the blessing that you're in, it is God's providential perfect timing for you right now. And that applies to every single moment in your life. If you refuse to surrender to the timetable of God, Then you fall back into verse 5. God opposes the proud. Which God do you want to deal with? Which hand of God do you want to deal with? The one that opposes the proud or the one that extends grace? It's the same hand. It's in the same
1: passage. Do you want
0: that hand to treat you like Jonah? Putting him into a fish for three days? Because he was resisting.
1: The hand of God. Pharaoh. Same story. Proud in his heart.
0: And God destroyed him. But I think there's a greater illustration than any of those. When we compare the fall of the first human. To the fall of the first supernatural being. The root of both of those falls is exactly the same. In Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, we read about Satan's fall. And it says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. In Isaiah 14, verse 14, there's another passage that speaks of the same. And this is what Satan declared. I will make myself like the most high. It was a desire in Satan's heart to be like God. To not submit to the hand of God. And the judgment is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. God says to Satan, Cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. He becomes the most despised animal. How many of you love snakes? Okay, you got to read your Bible more. (laughs) Vicious creatures. But then there's Eve. And in Genesis 3, verses 5 and 6, we find out why Eve fell. Satan came to her and then says, For God knows. Then in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The pride that was in her, the appeal to be like God was irresistible. And the next verse says, and so she ate the fruit. Whether it's a perfect supernatural being or a perfect human being, pride was the cause for both of them. And we know the global, catastrophic, multi generational consequences of following your pride. Every single sin and the result and the consequence of sin can be traced back to those two moments. Failing to submit to the mighty hand of God.
1: solicits God's attention and he begins to oppose you and he sets
0: up his whole army against you so the first reason why we surrender to God is because there's a future exaltation awaiting those who do secondly and this is going to be quick because of his fatherly care because of his fatherly care verse seven casting all your anxiety on him Because he cares for you. These words in verse 7 come from Psalm 52, verse 22. And you can just look at verse 7 as I read Psalm 52, verse 22 and see how parallel the two verses are. Cast your burden upon God and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Same language in the Greek. In the context of Psalm 55, Just let me read two verses for the sake of context. Verse 4 says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. And if you read the rest of the psalm, it's because the people oppose him. The people who are wicked oppose him. That was true of Psalm 55 in David's time. That's true of 1 Peter 5 in Peter's time where the wicked Nero was persecuting Christians. But guess what? Our world is also moving in that direction. Whether it's the suicide bombing in Kabul or anything else that's happening in this world and even how our our nation is moving in the direction of anti-Christianity. Ultimately, it scares us. And the response is, cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. Peter intentionally moves the word all to the very beginning in the original language, because that's the emphasis. Every single anxious thought, put it on him. And literally, because it is of concern to him, to continuously Care for you. That's the cool thought. It doesn't make much grammatical sense in the English, but listen to it again. How careful Peter was to put the order of certain words to emphasize the care of God. Every anxiety cast on him because it is of concern to him to continuously care for you. That's our God. It's of great concern to continuously care for you. He has every single hair on your head numbered. Luke 12 says that. He cares for your clothes, for your food, for your shelter. That's Matthew 6. And he wants you to put all your anxious thoughts upon him so that he can extend his fatherly care to you. One person said it this way God is neither unaware nor unconcerned about what his people are going through in order to remain faithful to Christ. You know, the ancient deities had to be forced to care for the people through various sacrifices, through various dances, through various rituals. They wanted to get them interested in the life of the human being. Whereas God is inherently
1: concerned for you. He cares for us. Whatever memories you might have about
0: difficult times, whatever present concerns you might have, whatever fears you might have about the future, all of them, God says, cast upon him because he cares for you. That is an expression of surrendering yourself under the mighty hand of God, which means living a life of anxiety is opposing the hand of God because it's all self centered. I'm concerned about my life. Whereas saying, No, God, you care, you love, you provide, I trust you. And I will surrender myself to you with every single just as much as we see jesus christ trusting in the god the father whether it was unrighteous mistreatment or abuse from his disciples or foolishness from his disciples he was faithful to follow and to trust his father we are called to do the same thing Certainly, this world is flawed and fallen. It provokes us to fear. It's filled with pain and persecution. But it's exactly in this world, whether it's the first century or the current times, that we as Christians are called to trust God, to embrace the hand of God, to surrender under the hand of God. Why? Because you will then be exalted at the proper time. Because you are living according to the timetable that God has set up for you. And because God cares for you. And so we submit and we surrender. And we do so like a Christian from the late 1800s. His name is Horatio Spafford, who is known for writing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And just listen to the story if you haven't heard it. If you have, hopefully this is a refreshing reminder of trusting God no matter what. Horatio Spafford was a very prosperous lawyer in 1870 in Chicago. He was an elder at his church. He was a professor at his medical college. He was the director of a seminary. He was active at the YMCA. He was a close friend of D.L. Moody the evangelist. He had five kids. He was married to Anna and he invested very well. He owned a lot of property in the center of Chicago. Today, that area is called the Loop. They were very wealthy. They bought a house in 1870 for $38,000. At that time, people made $2 a day. So that gives you a perspective of how wealthy they were. They were so well-to-do that they actually had a French governess working for them in the house. But in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed much of their property. It burned a lot of the investments in the city of Chicago. Their house was spared. It was about the same time that his son died from smallpox. In that fire, about 100,000 people were left homeless. Over 300 people died. And they used their wealth, Horatio Stafford and his wife, to help all these homeless people, even though they had lost most of their wealth as well. Well, he was encouraged to spend some time away because of the trouble of his the passing of his son and then the financial difficulties. And so he said they decided to go to England as a family from America. And as they were all boarding at the same time, as he was getting on the boat, news came to him that his financial partner just died. And so he had to stay back to take care of the financial business. And so he sent his wife and four daughters alone. And as they went to England, as they were crossing the Atlantic, a storm began. And ultimately, it was such a devastating storm that the ship sank in 12 minutes. All four daughters were killed in a horrific way, flying down from the highest of the levels of the ship all the way down into the Debris. She alone survived. His wife. When she got to England, she sent a telegram back that said to him, "Saved alone. What should I do?" He got on the plane, on the boat, and uh, he went to England. And as he was traveling, uh, the captain told him, "This is where your daughters drowned." And as he sat there and just kind of contemplated the moment, he wrote the song. It is well with my soul. In one of the most difficult moments of his life, reflecting on the passing of his four daughters, he was able to say, it is well with my soul. And we're going to sing that now. And I hope that as you sing it, you have surrendered yourself to God. You're a Christian. You're following Jesus Christ. And you are embracing God's plan and purpose and place for you at this time, then you can honestly sing, it is well with my soul. As Ivan and Stephanie and Andrea come up, let me pray for us. Lord God, what a challenge from Peter that we need to embrace your sovereign hand. We need to humble ourselves underneath it. We know that you know everything and you have laid everything out for this world, for human history. But we're so prone to not trusting you. We're so prone to forgetfulness of your past protection and benefits. Forgive us of that. Forgive us of not surrendering ourselves to you, for forgetting that you will exalt us, for forgetting that you are a father who cares. And so we begin to act like the heathen, forgetting that we need to imitate Jesus Christ in his trust in your
1: sovereign care. I pray for all of us
0: that our lives would reflect this kind of lifestyle a lifestyle that surrenders completely to you, and that we would call more people into your kingdom. That as people see us hopeful, joyful, optimistic about the future because we know you are in control, that they would ask us, what's wrong with you? And we can provide the answer for the hope that's within us. Pray this because we do want you to be honored with our lives and we want it to be well with our souls all the time.
1: Amen.